Welcome to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast Series. Today we have our special guest, Dr. Otis Smallwood, Superintendent of Bertie County Schools in Windsor, North Carolina. As a Bertie County High School alum and lover of local history, he has tapped into local resources and is developing a history course for his students to learn the history of Bertie County and its impact on the growth of the United States. Welcome, everyone, to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast. I'm David Linovers, Vice President of Plexus, and today we have Superintendent Dr. Oda Smallwood from Bertie County Public Schools in Windsor, North Carolina, and that's in Northeast North Carolina, correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. Right on. Is it right on the coast? Is that where you are, like coastal? Uh, we coastal-ish. <laughs> we lead coastal-ish. to the coast. Yes, yeah, so we're about an hour and a half from the coast. Hour and a half, hour four, to something like that. Okay. From the Outer Banks, yes. Oh, I got you. So not too far from the beach. That's kind of nice. Yeah, we're surrounded by a lot of water, um, by the beautiful Albemarle Sound and and three rivers. uh, But of course, Albemarle Sound dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. So we're about an hour 40, hour 45 from the true Atlantic or to the Outer Banks. You know, it's interesting you mention that because just geographically, in California, you're not often an hour inland on a river where you could take a boat an hour all the way out to the ocean. Like you can't where you are, I'm sure. Probably even further inland and further out, right? Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's a whole different topography and, and that. So, uh, you know, as we were chatting beforehand, I know that you're at a conference right now. Um, tell us a little bit about the conference and what you guys do there. Yes. So I'm at the North Carolina School Boards Association annual conference. Um, uh, they gather once a year statewide and we have regional meetings as well. But this this week in November, um, the School Boards Association of North Carolina hosts its annual conference. And I mean, it's a great networking event. You know, um, we get to meet and, and uh, socialize and, and learn from other school districts across the state. It's, it's training for board members that um, that's required training for board members. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, the biggest part about it is, you know, we have national speakers as well. We just had a great presenter this morning that spoke about the change in demographics of the country and how the population is shifting and how the southern states of the United States are getting this influx of people coming from every other region and how that's going to shape our schools in years to come. Um so like right now, it's another general session going on, but then we have breakout sessions in the afternoon and uh, different school districts and school boards present on about things that are happening that's been successful in, in their prospective school districts. So we get to learn and, and grow and see what other school districts are doing across the state. That's, that's pretty cool that you do that. I mean, I've talked to a few other superintendents who have those kind of annual conferences, but like you mentioned that. So there's required training for the board members. Is that on like education policy, how they interact with each other? Is that kind of what the board training is? Yes, it's uh, policies and um, school board procedures and ethics training for school boards. Um, Hmm. Then budget, things about school budget, understanding budgets, of course. And um, but so it's a little bit of a a plethora of things for um, to choose from, but it's all about just making them better school board members or more effective school board members, I should say. Keeping them understanding everything that yeah. they need to know. Cause that's a big job too, being a board member, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, sir. 
I mean, talk, I know that every superintendent I've talked to, like, they love their board. They interact with them and they have a high degree of respect for what they're dedicated to. And that's, it's pretty incredible your relationship with them that you've had to develop over time, right? Absolutely. So my, my story is a little different than some superintendents, but oh. some superintendents do, um, are in the same situation I am too. So I came back home to be the superintendent, um, having left the district for, and again, I apologize for this light. I'm trying to make sure the light stays bright. <laughs> but uh, I had, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a product of my district. Um, I, I came back and taught there for a few years and, and worked my way up. Then I left and stayed away for 11 years, but didn't go too far. I just went to the, I'm in the Northeastern Corridor. I went to the Southeast Corridor or North okay. Carolina. And I worked there in a district for 11 years. And then I had an opportunity to come back home. So the cool thing about being home is you, you, home and you know, most everybody, right? So that's true. My area is small or the declining population. And well, all my school board members, I knew, right? So I had a, a, a step ahead in trying to build relationships because many of them, all of them, I already knew, you know, like I had two of them that taught me when I was in school. Um, okay. And then one of those two, I became an administrator before I left. So we were administrators together. Um, and then my board chair, we were in high school together. I was in her wedding. It was the best man, not the best man, but I was a groomsman at her wedding. Her husband <laughs> and I were roommates in college and her husband graduated from high school with me. And so, you know, I just knew a lot about everybody. They knew me. Um, even though I had left Bertine, I, I still had a home and paid taxes. I had family, my mom and Bertine. So I was still very much connected to, to, to the community. So I didn't have to spend as much time learning. I just had to kind of get, you know, acclimated again to, to the, uh, to certain things, but I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time working on building those relationships. Cause I, in a sense, I already had them. And obviously you maintained them well and you came back yes. and everyone was happy to have you back. That's a, I mean, we know in education world that it's very small, gets small really fast. And then to maintain those relationships. I mean, as an alumni, which you are, right, of the of, of Bertice High School, and then you you were what director in the county schools, technology and data, and all sorts of stuff for eight years, and then you come back again. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's definitely that. a unique experience. Yes, and and a blessing on top of that. Yes, <laughs> I mean, being able to go home. I think like I grew up in the Northeast. I think, would I, would I go back to a little Southbury, Connecticut? I don't know if the opportunity was right, right? You just don't know. You, you just never really know. don't know. <laughs> right. I was talking to a friend at the conference here, and she was like, oh, this, and we worked together before, too. She said, did you ever think this was on your career today? I said, absolutely not. I had no clue <laughs> that I wanted to be a superintendent. Like, that did not cross my path. I knew I wanted to be in education, but just never really even dawned on me. Um, you know, coming up being a teacher and an administrator in the schools and even at the central office the first time, you know, I knew the superintendent well. Right. The stuff I saw him dealing with, I'm like, mm, I don't know if I want to do that or not. But the, the more I moved up on the chain, so to speak, I um, mean, got to work closer with my superintendent when I was an assistant and just kind of fine tuning about policy and learning about the things that's happening in the legislation, think budget, kind of piqued my interest. So um, as I got closer to the retirement era, I said, well, if now's the time to try, it's now. If it's gonna, if I'm going to ever do it here, it's the time. So 
Um, and you've been happen. there for four years, five years? Four. This is my fourth year. Yes, fourth sir. Year. So you you joined pretty much right before the pandemic hit, a few months, right? Five or six months before? Absolutely. Whew. What a way to start a superintendency, right? Oh. And uh, it is a five, six months in, we have a pandemic. It, it, it's crazy when you think about the number. I've talked to a number of superintendents that were like, if I had known what I knew, <laughs> even those that were in December of 19, before I joined in February of 20, that month we'd be shut down. It's it's just, I would imagine as superintendents that the amount that you had to come together during that time to figure out what was going on was pretty incredible teamwork. The Plexus Education Leadership Podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Plexus Foundation and UnlimitedTutoring.com. Visit us at www.unlimitedtutoring.com and learn more about our high-quality tutoring offering and affordable pricing packages. We're here and dedicated to your academic success. www.unlimitedtutoring.com I should write a book when I retire. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. I mean, with your team, um, I know your school district is around 2,000, 3,000 students. Right closer to two. We read about 1,800. About 1,800 or so. Now, is your area a growing area population-wise, pretty stable? What are you seeing in the, you know, in your Northeast North Carolina area as far as population growth and changes? You mentioned that already in bits of, you know, demographic changes with the national speaker and stuff at the conference. Just curious. So, no, our area up in the Northeast and in so North Carolina is mostly rural anyway. I think out of our 100 counties, 80 of them are considered rural. I, okay. If anybody's listening, don't hold me to that. But it's it's much, many more rural counties than urban. And all the urban areas are kind of concentrated in the central areas of North Carolina and a little bit west. Um, and that's the, from the presentation I heard. Even though we're having a major, major move of population coming to North Carolina, most of them tend to kind of be around the, that urban area. So the rural counties are not, we're not being able to take advantage of that, um, of that population growth. So in my area, in my county alone, we've probably experienced a 20% uh, rate of decrease of, in the last 10 years, right? So our county is getting smaller and it's getting older, you know, older population, you know, um, families are not having as many children, of course, as they used to. And that's nationwide, you know, but we feel it at home, too. So, but yeah, it's getting smaller, it's getting older um, population. So in our school system, of course, is experiencing the same thing. We're, we're, our school population has declined as well. Sure, you lose, if 15 students don't come the next year, that could be almost one class for kids, couldn't it? That's class, that's right, that's a position. So, yeah. That does have an impact. I mean, as you as you think about those changes, what what comes to mind of of things you have to plan for or think about? I, you know, obviously, you're super. You think about everything under the sun, right? I mean, literally everything. But that specific thing, what do you, what goes through your mind? Well, of course, dollars go right. So so goes this. And I and I shouldn't say money at first, but I mean, it's just the reality of the situation, you know. Uh, losing kids cost comes with losing thousands of dollars in state dollars um, yeah. and some federal dollars. And then, and, you know, in North Carolina, we have a 
our local government has a, a funding strength to the school systems as well. But, you know, if you got us in a rural area like mine and you don't have a large tax base, then you cannot expect the state to to make up for that difference in what you're losing in the state. And so a lot of people assume like, well, you don't need as much money if you don't have as many kids. But I tell them all the time, but the services don't go away, you know. I might lose a teacher, I lose some um, some money, but the kids' needs don't go away. We still need to have funds to make sure the kids get what they need. So that's always a challenge to have to kind of shift things around and move people around um, in hopes of not letting people go. But then sometimes attrition will help you out too. It helps us with the budget piece. It doesn't help with the services piece. So um, it's just always a finagling situation. when you lose out, uh, can you replace something here or seek a grant fund here to kind of make up the difference, right? So so anytime we lose kids, it's, it's very, very hard and it's a strain on our overall operating budget. That makes a lot of sense, it, it, especially when you think about the funding. And I, you know, you see bonds that are put out there for construction and things like that they talk about we got this bond passed or we didn't get it passed or this is approved not approved locally right based on the funding but when you mention the budgeting it the creativity i guess for lack of a better word that you do have to do right you're creatively working with the board to constantly budget and figure it out right that's right and then like you mentioned meeting the services because you're right services are a big part of education um, outside of just the teachers. You what food, transportation, paraprofessionals, librarians. I mean, you name it. That's right. And, you know, with the whole, um, since, since the pandemic, you know, we, you know, social, emotional, social and emotional learning has always been important, but, you know, the pandemic just kind of let us know is needed now more than ever. So you got, you know, we need school nurses, we need social workers, you know, we need counselors, and um, and you almost need therapists in every school these days. And you know, because kids have needs, but then, you know, you can't. So you know, we have a a, a people problem too that we can't find all the people that we need anyway. Right? We have a um, employment shortage, but then. Um, trying to make it work. So sometimes you have to end up sharing services and it's one school to share accounts, two schools share accounts, or you have to split the council to show social work. You know, it's just, it makes, we try to meet the needs of the kids, but it just becomes very, very challenging to do so. You know, it makes me think of my, uh, or my kid, my daughters went to school. Uh, they, the middle school and the high school had a shared music program, teachers back and forth. Um, and that was within the district, but, one of them went between like four different schools to make sure that the programs ran. It sounds like, I mean, you're not the only school district I've heard that from with the sharing of employees. Um, yeah. But like you mentioned that that's taxing on that employee too. And then the students at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. We do that too. In our elementary, we have four elementary schools and they share a music teacher. They share a foreign language teacher. They share arts, a visual arts teacher. And uh, we just added, theater um uh, so four elementary schools so they do one nine weeks in each school we have four nine weeks so okay one nine weeks and then they shift but the beauty of well the silver lining to that is like we didn't have any of that before i arrived <laughs> we only had music so sources weren't always distributed 
you know, equitably, right? So we had, oh, okay. we had music in one school, the biggest school, right? Because sometimes people look at numbers and say, well, you can have this. You don't have enough numbers for this, right? And I, I get that logic too, but you got a school over here in Windsor. My Windsor elementary is the biggest elementary school and they have a music teacher full time. And then on the west side of the county, um, Orlando, who they only have a little over 100 kids, they don't get music because of the numbers, right? But I'm like, well, we have to change that because we have some talented kids over here too that can take advantage of music. Um, so we had to, we couldn't find a music teacher for all the schools, so we had to kind of put them on a rotation. So, you know, nobody was getting foreign language. So, you know, now we have foreign language, the arts, because we think about the kids when they leave the district in 12th grade and how we want to build a pipeline and have a, a pathway. Right. Working backwards. So, you know, we had foreign language in high school. Well, we didn't have it in high school, but you have these programs in high school that kids don't get anything K-8. Like, how do you expect the high school programs to be successful, right? So, even that's, though we have to share those, share those teachers in elementary, but at least the kids are getting exposed to it, right? Because, you know, I'm all about access and opportunity. You know, we need to expose kids because that's going to be what makes school fun for many of the kids the, the music you know they tell the, the um the core music the band the foreign language you know those kinds of things are going to spark some talent in those kids so anyway we added that so they can feed into the middle school with those same programs and so that the high school programs can flourish as well so we build that pipeline so kids have a clear pathway to what they want to do that's such a good point and it's something that Again, people listening, if they're superintendents, know, but those that listen that don't know superintendents work, that you look at equitable distribution of teaching so everybody has it. And also, like you said, when everybody's feeding into the same high school, Bertie High School, if they have no exposure to music or theater, how is the program in the high school supposed to thrive? You're right. right. I didn't even think about that piece alone. I mean, I'm aware of it, but just from that, the nature of ah, that impact of right. what's down not downstream, but throughout the educational experience for someone. That's, that's really powerful. I like that. And, and so you, since you've been there, you've redistributed them. And now all the kids get those opportunities. I love it. Yes. I love that. Cause there's so many neat things that the kids are all available to do. And, and like I said, you understand the choices superintendents make, but I, I like that when you talk about the equity and making sure everyone has access to it, this really is a superintendent. That's part of your role, isn't it? To make sure all kids have access, whether they want to go to college or don't want to go to college. They're well-trained right. and educated. That's right. Absolutely. I, I saw that recognition um, thing that came up on the Bertie County website. Um, who's the gentleman? Uh, one of the local business partners. Um, what was it? I'd have to pull it up, but, uh, I thought it was really interesting to see that. I like that on there that you have. That's you have on our web page. Yes. Is it Marshall Cherry? Yes. That's right. So, so Marshall and I, so Bertie is small. We all connected, right? So Marshall. Yeah. yeah Roanoke Marshall's, Electric Cooperative and Roanoke Connect. Yes. <laughs> right. So Marshall and I were, he, he's one year older than me. We okay. were, but we were in the same classes all in school. Like we all, we were always in combination classes. I was in third, he was in the fourth. <laughs> we, we went up all the way through elementary okay. school because when we were in school, the schools were K-8. We didn't have a, a middle school concept then. Our elementary school was K-8. And so, uh, but his dad 
taught me in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And his dad is a school board member right now. Um, but he's retired from the board. He didn't run for re-election. So um, the meeting in November was Ms. Marshall's dad last meeting. Okay. But uh, but Marshall, uh, who's now the this chief operating, uh, he's the CEO of Roanoke Electric. I think he's been in that position now for a year. He, he worked his way on up. And when the prior executive left, uh, Marshall was named CEO. But so, of course, they are electric cooperative. They um they provide electrical services to many of our schools. Mm-hmm. And now they're on this big broadband initiative to expand broadband in our area uh, with um, high-speed internet access. So, but Marshall, they are very, they've always been a good partner, but because I know him so well, you know, we are, we're getting a better partner, have a stronger partnership. So he was recognized. So what we've been trying to do is to highlight our alums who are making a positive contribution in their field or in society, or you know, just for one to to highlight and get them more involved in the local school, and then to also to let the kids know, hey, look, this is somebody who went right to these same schools as you did. Mm-hmm. They're from this community. They're still connected in the community, and they're doing very very well. Um, so we we kind of take recommendations. We ask. Um, people to make recommendations to us like who do you know that's doing well so marsha was recommended um this month and he we have a strong partnership with him too because we are re- redesigning our athletic field and okay. we're doing wires and infrastructure and we got a grant to help pay for all that cost but they didn't pay for the moving of electrical lines and running <laughs> lines underground on our athletic but Marshall and his company and the team there, they did all that rerouting and electrical infrastructure work for free. So they didn't charge us uh, to to move lines and take down poles and run stuff on the ground. All that was absolutely uh, free of charge to us. So um, he would have gotten the spotlight anyway if he hadn't done that. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) but uh, but that's, those are the kinds of things we're trying to highlight with our alum. And then we, we, we do that on the website. We get, put it on our social media pages. We honor them at the board meetings. And then we do media blasts to all of our schools. You know, they have the, uh, we have the big TVs at the, in the lobbies and programs running. So the kids see it every, every, every yeah. month because we just select somebody every month. Then we email it to all our secondary kids, our middle and high school kids. So they can just see it. And and many times people would know, like I know him or I know his brother, I know his whatever. Again, just a just a piece to kind of highlight the work that our alums are doing and to be motivational for our kids. Um, and we don't pick all people that went to college either. You know, we pick some college people, we pick some people that's doing well in their prospective careers. And so we're gonna try to keep doing this for as long as I'm there. We started it back in the um First part of the year, I think, maybe back in the winter, maybe okay. February or March, we started that. Um, and so that's what we're trying to, to um, make sure our kids are encouraged and just know that they have opportunities beyond what they're love, seeing now in Bertie. I love that, that you're doing that with the alumni. And, you know, like you said, your relationship with him allows you to stay connected. And you mentioned that already and inspiring the kids and making sure that they see themselves in those roles, right? Like right. that self-efficacy, like I can do this. That's it. I can see myself there. And 
it, it is so important to keep that kind of conversation flowing for kids to like, look, this is what you can do and you're capable of doing. And that's why I love what you said when you redistributed the, you know, the, the language and music and the theater and the band and you, you do that because some kids don't even know they're capable until they try. And now you're right. giving them that opportunity. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We know, we know kids and we're in a high poverty area and we know kids that are high poverty and kids of color. They need to have a sense of hope, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we know hope is not scientific per se. Uh, I'm pushing it more towards science, but you know, people always say, you know, hope is not scientific, but you have to have it, right? You have to, you have to have it, right? And so we know that, and research is clear that kids need to have hope. They need somebody believing in them. They need to be able to look at you and know you believe in them. They need to have an advocate. So. Um, all those things we're trying to do is trying to inspire kids to show them that um, they have hope. I love that. Now you mentioned, you said the scientific side. So, and you mentioned you were a math guy, right? Yes. That's what you love is math. So um, when you look at the data and you look at the scientific things, you, you understand that and you know where it comes from and, and how to analyze the data well. So it, it must be cool for you to be able to talk about it in a way and, and explain it in a way that people understand, too. You really probably can unpack it quite well, I would imagine. Yeah, so I've been um, fortunate or blessed enough to be able to understand numbers. Um, I did that, taught it for a few years. And you're right. Um, because it's uh, it's a story behind the numbers too, right? And the story is the most important part, right? Because right. even when the numbers look very, very well on the surface, it's still a story and there's still some missing pieces. So that's the fun part. You get to disaggregate it uh, and look beyond the quantitative parts. And now let's look at the qualitative parts of these numbers to tell, um, to, to excel further or to let's catch up the ones um, that that have not quite reached the, the the threshold that we need them to be at, right? So I always talk to principals about when they disaggregating the data and looking at assessments, so they need to have kids' names right beside numbers, right? Because That's you right. need to know these kids. Yeah, you need to know them by name and automatically know, you know when somebody says, um, David, what does David need, right? Somebody shouldn't be ratted off in that building. But David is doing well here, but he needs X, Y, and Z. And this is the plan we have in place to try to help David um, get to, you know, his, his target. Yeah. That's such a good point. I, you know, in my career in higher education for, for many years, um, I remember talking to my team when I was at Cal State Monterey Bay. We, I was, they were, we were talking. I said, remember, our job, you said it well, is to make sure we know where anyone is at and at any point in the cycle of admissions into the university, what's going on? How can we understand what's happening and, and really help them through that next step? And in education, it's much more complicated because um, you really have what P through 12, 16 sometimes, right? Like all the way through. So you, it's, it's just an incredible undertaking. The things you have to, the things you do out of love and your work and everything to help grow kids into, you know, incredible adults that they can become. Right. But the good, the, the, I mean, it's all good, but I have a good team too. You know, I have a very good team because yes. I mean, everybody knows you can't do this work by yourself, but I have a, my core executive team of 
excellent. I have an excellent group of principals um, who all had, you know, they got that burning, that desire to do well. Um, so I've been very fortunate in this role to to surround myself with very good people. It's true. Yeah, you don't get where we are without good team members. That's right. Really, That's really right. Good point. Um, and it's. It, I love that you get to talk about all the things that are happening in the district. And I know for myself, I never forget the team members doing it. Like you mentioned, the teachers, um, just the shared stuff we talked about. And obviously, of hundreds of more teachers, you could talk about every single day and the amazing work that they do. Yes, <laughs> I love that. Now. I, I, I would love to have a follow-up podcast about what we talked about earlier, but you mentioned that someone close to you and your family has written a local history book about Bertie County. Yes. Um, yeah, his name is Dr. Arwin, Arwin Smallwood, who is, um, up until recently, he was the department chair of the history and department at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro. Um, but he's been promoted now to a dean or associate dean or something at the school. Nice. But yes, a few years ago, he wrote a book, um, History of Bertie County, um, and had been written a while before I actually read the book. Um, and I got a copy of the book, and it's not a thick book, you know, maybe 100 plus pages, and it was just kind of talking about from the the settlers' days from the Native Americans, the Tuscarora Indians, and through the Tuscarora War, and just kind of how the, the the landscape changed after the war and the Great Migration. It, it was just a very interesting book. And what made it extra in interesting for me, the section of Bertie County where Orton and I grew up is called Indian Woods. Okay. That's the name of the community. It's in Windsor, but you know how you have these little sub-communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Indian Woods is a large portion of the county. It stretches several square miles, but as he was telling about where these things were happening based on his research, I'm like, I know what that is, but that's on our street, you know? That tree, I know exactly what that huge tree is. It, the, the church that I grew up in, all these things were kind of like, just resonated with me because I'm like, I'm right here, but I never knew that because it was not taught as a part of our North Carolina history. Right. You know, sometimes things are mentioned, like a paragraph is mentioned here or a sentence is mentioned here about certain areas. But um, so he was inspired to write the book based on his research and his dissertation from a very famous researcher who talked about Bertie County. And he was like, if, if Bertie County was important enough for this big researcher to talk about, I need to dig a little deeper. So he did a lot of research in the area but it just inspired me so i said well i didn't know this going to school and here we are we have kids in school now we're taking u.s history and economic and political systems and u.s history up to a certain point and but all this stuff that happened in bertie county is the basis for a lot of the what we're talking about in the united states history right so I'm like, how cool would it be and maybe spark some interest History is not everybody's favorite subject, right? You know, it's sometimes it can get a little dates and repetitive and little <laughs> mundane, you know. It, it wasn't my favorite thing, too, but I'm like, gosh, if I could pick up this book and read it, yeah, how would it inspire kids? And then knowing this stuff is right in their backyard. So I, we had a conversation and he was all in for the idea. Like hmm. I said, you know, but of course we had staff changes and people leaving. And so and the pandemic came and 
just kind of shift what we were trying to, to get started um, as far as exposing the kids. So, but what we do now, we do have a plan in place for PD to introduce his his work in this book, which is a lot is this dissertation work uh, in our elementary schools because we teach North Carolina history in grades four and seven to try to train teachers, give them PD so they can integrate into the North Carolina history. And then when they get in high, so that's elementary and middle school. So when they get in high school, they will have some knowledge of this content and the book will become the book and we develop in a curriculum. So that can be a local course. Uh, it wouldn't be a required course. We won't make it required, but just a local option. So kids can kind of learn about the history right where they're from and how that impacted the United States on a whole. You know, that's so powerful to take that and to transform it into a course, number one, because you're just bringing something alive that not everyone knows about. And that's what education supposed to do is educate you on everything that's possible and to have that history in place. I, I, that's just so cool to see because there is a lot of history out there. And I think I mentioned to you before the call that um, Dr. Diana Green down in Duval County in Florida is doing that with her students too. They've been doing it about three years now. Um, and when you, when we were talking about before and you're like, I'm like, I love that to hear because there's so much cool things that exist in your towns, where you're from, that did make those kind of changes happen. Right. That's right. In North Carolina, like you mentioned, one of the first 13. Yeah. In right. Connecticut, I went to Rochambeau Middle School. General Rochambeau, French general, helped in the Revolutionary War, right? And we had people like, you know Rochambeau, the game? I'm like, yeah, I went to Rochambeau Middle School. They're like, what? <laughs> but, you know, and same with North Carolina, there was that kind of historical perspective of of what happens and the names and things that you kind of take for granted because you see them, but you don't know really what's behind it. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. And now generationally your family. So you're from Bertie. You went to Bertie yes. high school. How about your parents, grandparents and that too? Are they all from Bertie as well? Yes. So as far back as I can look research, <laughs> I haven't done a lot of real research on my family <laughs> genealogy, but yes, my Grandparents on both sides um, are from Bertie County. Um, my mother and father, of course, were educated in the segregated school systems mm -hmm. of uh, schools of Bertie. Um, but yes, right from Bertie, grew up in Windsor, the Indian Woods community, and haven't gotten too far away from home. You know, I went to a college an hour away, Elizabeth City State University, which yeah. is another HBCU, and um, can't had no. I had no idea I would be coming back home to work. Like not, my whole career has not been what I planned. I, I knew <laughs> I wanted to teach. <laughs> I knew I wanted to teach. But like coming back home to teach, absolutely not, right? <laughs> That's true. But believe it or not, in 93, the teaching shortage um, was not like it is today. Your teaching was pretty silent. And in my age, right, you didn't have a lot of, I mean, you always had some openings, but. Not like it is now, right? So in 93, when I graduated and I finished in December of 93, and I really wanted to stay at the high school that I did my student teaching in and pass the but it was no math vacancies, right? None. So, but it was a math vacancy at my high school. <laughs> so, um, and this, how, this is how funny it is, right? The personnel director in Bertie at the time graduated high school with my mom. <laughs> he called my mom to call me like, 
talk Otis into coming back home to help us out for a little while. Let's finish the year. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I do not want to go back home. My mom was like, well, you don't have a job. You need to work in your field. She put the guilt trip on me. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I came Sounds home. like a good mom. Your mom's like, okay, come on, son. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's still putting the guilt on me about something even to the day. <laughs> But you know, and that's how it all is. It, that's it's, that's where it started. I talked. I, I did leave for a little while, about six or seven months. I got frustrated, but I it didn't take me long to come on back, and I've been with it ever since. That's fantastic. I mean, really, just to be an alumni, to come back, to like be there, then leave again, then come back as superintendent, and all that. I mean, truly a special journey, and you know, as as we wrap things up in the podcast, time, you always think it's going to take forever. The conversation just goes and you're like, hey, God, it's almost it does. 35, 40 minutes. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something about the ruralness of your community and um, the high poverty rates. One of the districts I spoke to in Arkansas, um, which is high poverty rural too, they did a lot to get hotspots and technology. And it sounds like uh, Mr. Is it Marshall that he, he and his uh, company are doing a lot as well that way to make sure access to the Internet is there? Because it's something we take for granted. Like, oh, it's just going to be there. But it's not just there for everybody. Right. What are you guys doing for that? Yeah. So we, you know, so Bertie and a lot of areas of in Northeast and North Carolina, a lot of the districts are kind of similar. You know, you have a couple of outliers, but like we're kind of in this Internet desert. Right. So. Um, and we knew we had this challenge before the pandemic, but of course the pandemic just made everything worse, right? Exacerbated everything. So what, you know, so during the pandemic, you know, we had grants that we were able to get hot spots and free service for families for a year or so like that. But the the funny thing, not funny, but the challenge is still, everybody thinks you can just get a hotspot and it'll automatically work, right? So you still have areas in the county that a hotspot would do no good because they there's nowhere for them to reach out to. They can't get connected. So, so the areas that we had hotspots, we passed it out, of course, free of charge. Um, uh, they didn't have to pay anything. And for the first year, the district didn't have to pay anything either because we had grants to cover it. But what we did start to do is, and all of our school builders, of course, are you know high speed. And I, I'm not going to get on my kick about the federal government. Anyway, what we try to do is. <laughs> Understandable. We, uh, <laughs> you know, because we do have. I mean, a lot of the infrastructure is laid, right? If you can get it to your yeah. schools, you can get it to homes in your communities, right? But again, they make it as a barrier. But what we partnered with local. We made all of our, we kind of pumped up our broadband and made our, um, all of our school campuses hot spots so kids could drive up and mm. do work. And they still are. And then we we went to local businesses, to the community colleges, to the churches that had high speed. Everywhere that we the pinpoint a high speed, we asked, could you open up an access point that's free for our kids and families so they can drive up? Um, of course, all the businesses in the area that have internet, like especially in that Windsor area, the little restaurants, you know, Everywhere that we could think of, uh, we made we we partnered with our local uh, businesses to kind of create a uh, open up their broadband so kids could connect during during pandemic during the pandemic. And of course, with the Roanoke Electric, they were already realizing the need 
to expand it anyway. So they were working on some grants. And so a lot of it has come through. And like I said, COVID came and the government put a lot of more money to broadband access. So now they're doing the work to expand in more areas of the county to have so families can have affordable access to to broadband. Because like you said, it really is a necessity now. Like it's absolutely it's just as important as as the cell phone, right? So it's so key. I mean, it's so easy to think everyone has access. That's not true. That's not true. It's just not true. And you, you mentioned the, the, the one-time money from the federal government. It's like that stuff to get stuff going is key, but the ongoing maintenance and ability to deliver the quality services day after day after day takes way more investment and money than it does to start it up. Exactly. Yeah. And I and I definitely it, it's awesome you're doing that. And, and all of the superintendents who we've talked to similar who have rural communities and high poverty rates see the needs that they understand and the partnerships that they're developing with what you've done with asking the communities to help support the kids really transforms the whole community, it sounds like. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And people see it. Yeah. You know, um, Anything else you want to add before we just wrap it up? Oh, no, David, this wasn't bad. You know, I was nervous when I started. <laughs> but <laughs> but no, I, first, I just want to thank you for reaching out to me and um, You're welcome. Uh, offer me the opportunity to talk about my district and my babies. I had to stop saying they say I don't call them babies, but, you know, they are even the big kids. They're my babies. Uh, of course they are. I agree. And uh, to highlight some things that we know we were uh, that we are able to do in Bertie, um, yeah. still have a long way to go. But you know, with everybody working together and staying the course and building positive relationships, and just you know, one of our core values. Well, yeah, you know, one of our core values is keeping the main thing the main thing. Right? I feel like, what do you? It's just we only need to focus on what we need to focus on. That's how. Can we make the lives better for kids and families, right? So that's true. We we all our conversations are trying to frame around is this what's best for kids or this will not make our kids better. Everybody kind of keep the main thing the main thing. We definitely going to see more growth. We've had a tremendous growth um, over the last couple of years. And um I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to highlight some of the things that we're trying to get done in Bertie with all of us working together. You're so welcome. I, I appreciate your time, um, you know, getting to know you and your district and a little bit about the history. I'm like, I want to read this book now. I, I, I get into learning about what what goes on in the communities of the people I get to know, like yourself and other superintendents, because there's just the incredible work that you and your team are doing and, and really the whole team, right? Like you mentioned, you like, can't do it alone. It needs to be highlighted. I love being able to talk about it. It's just a pleasure to meet you. Me, absolutely. Same here, David. Look, if you if you email me your address, I make sure you get a book. I make absolutely. sure you get. It. <laughs> you got it. You got you it. Enjoy. Thanks again. You will enjoy. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining the Plexus High School Leadership Podcast Series. If you'd like more information on this podcast or Plexus, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.